I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm so excited to have Priya Verma here with me. She's a yoga therapist and a physician's assistant and an expert on cultural appropriation. Um, and I'm just, Priya, I'm so excited. We, we've connected uh, you know, on Facebook and had many you know, deep conversations about, about uh, anti-racism and um, spirituality. And I'm really excited to, you might be my first, I've had like one, two white guests on my podcast, but everyone else has been black. So I'm really excited to be branching out and getting the view of uh, the point of view of other people. And, and in particular with this discussion uh, topic for today, it's super important because we're, we're going to be focusing on cultural appropriation in the meditation and wellness uh, and yoga space. So thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, we've had some really amazing conversations these last couple of months. It's been yeah. and there's so many intersection points and so many things that inform each other, but just to start having this dialogue in a way that we started with is kind of the goal, just to be able to open, you have this open-hearted discussion and just listen and, and hear what we have to share in our perspective. So thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. So for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what cultural appropriation is yet, we're gonna get there. But what I would like to do is really start with your story. Um, frame, framed in your exposure to spirituality. If you want to talk about lineages or anything like that, please feel free to do that. Um, what you've loved about it, what, what, what you've, with some pitfalls maybe of, of, of your spiritual path, um, if you, if you want to share that. So um, I, I hit the jackpot, literally. I was born, you know, to a South Asian family, to an Indian family, um, and born and raised here in the States. But my father um, was a yoga teacher, a long-standing yoga teacher. Um, so I, I, my, my whole life, quite candidly, has been an immersion in yoga philosophy and meditation and ethics um, and all these practices, um, first under him, but because of, because of him, it opened the doors to so many other teachers, to gurus, to swamis, and to um, you know, all sources where we could learn. So um, he, he actually learned by a North Indian uh, yoga master named Durendra Brahmachari, who was the yoga master to three Indian prime ministers. And he started teaching back in the 50s in India, and, and of course then with us here in the household. So I grew up seeing my parents, and there weren't many Indians um, as I grew up. They were the first wave of, of um, Indian immigrants to come over. Um, I saw him practicing yoga, my mother practicing yoga. There was always meditation. There was an Ayurvedic lifestyle. I just took it as a way of being. I didn't realize that this was a very specific studied path. So like I said, jackpot to just grow up with that being normalized that this is the way we eat, this is the way we uh, move into our day, how we step into our consciousness. And so my education evolved, of course. You know, I, I had the um, privilege of studying Vedanta, which is a tradition that really focuses on the sacred texts and going back to the original Vedas. Um, and that particular expression of Vedanta teaching was really more focused on social reform, on education and equality, that arose during colonial India 145 years ago, and, and it's still sort of relevant, and it sort of informs 
what we were talking about in terms of social reform and social justice here. And then of course, I studied in all the different yoga traditions um, with Swami Satchananda and you know, um, Patiba Joy and Iyengar Yoga. And, um, and in these last um, eight years in the tradition of uh, Krishnamacharya, who kind of is the father, if you will, of modern yoga uh, as it proliferated here in the West and his um, student, uh, uh, TKV Deskachar, who really is the modern architect of yoga therapy. So it's been a lifelong immersion and, and there is a lot of lessons to take from all of it. You know, I, I took something from everything and I think that's key. That, that's a part of the uniqueness of the experience of Indian philosophy is that it's an exploration. It's about seeking answers um, because Indian philosophy of these rich indigenous traditions is a plurality, meaning it's, it's heterogeneous. There are many paths, but one truth. And so we're encouraged to seek answers from all of these different teachings. Um, what makes it interesting, having looked back at the different um, stages of my pathway, was how I, how I found these teachings to be so contextual. And that's very true for these wisdom traditions. So Krishnamacharya had three really um, influential students that shaped Ashtanga Yoga, Iyengar Yoga, and um, Vini Yoga, or Krishnamacharya Yoga. Uh, and so with these three teachers, you had three students studying under him, but he had three completely different diverse pathways that, again, the, the teachings are fashioned to the student who then becomes the teacher of that practice and fashions those teachings to their students. Mm -hmm. So it becomes very relevant, it becomes very real, but at a certain point when we're passing the teachings along, you know, we always want to look towards the original teachings to see if where that perspective of that context came from. And that was very valuable to me, um, learning and understanding that. And of course, understanding that the classical teaching of yoga happened in what's called the guru model, where you would live with the teacher. That was the classical methodology because so much of learning is nonverbal. It's, it's a passive absorption of a way of living so that it preserves the nuances around those teachings. But of course, in modern age, we, we don't have that ability, right? We have college, we get to go away and live with others that get to study, but not necessarily that same classical method. So I, I think what I took away from all of it um, was that there's great benefit and great value in learning in each of these traditions and seeking guidance um, with these scholarly um, people and with people who had profound experience. But I was ultimately guided in each step of the way to go inward and to seek my own accountability. And, and so that might be different than the classic guru model where you study with the guru, you stay with the guru, you absorb that. But, um, you know, gurus are humans and there are uh, elements of that contextual teaching that may perhaps not reflect what could be appropriate as we change and transform. It's not a bad thing. It was just something I found um, allowed me a greater path of growth to keep exploring and seeking answers. I, ho I hope that answers that. No, that's great. That's, that's perfect. I mean, I've, I've had my own experiences with, with the person who uh, fashions himself a guru in my tradition and, and letting go of that and recognizing that even though he always said, you know, I'm teaching you to be independent and to not need me, he was doing the opposite mm. um, and using it as a, as a, a weapon actually. Yeah. And, and, and realizing like, as I was searching for answers, realizing that it was all within me was 
pretty profound. So I'm, yeah. I'm still picking up what you're putting down. It's the same thing. And, you know, unfortunately, there is the, that hierarchical model, right, where there's this disciplinary aspect that you accept things as they go. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's an ethical boundary that if that person's following true ethics, then it can be a very respectful and growth mindset. But when that ethical relationship has been skewed or compromised, we see evidence of that harm on so many levels. We've seen that happen with so many lineages. Yeah. Of I think we just have to be careful, that, be mindful of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. How and why is your culture important to you? And you got, you got at this a little bit already at the first question, but what, what is so, is it possible to answer that question? I yeah, guess. I think it is. So culture is part of all of our identity, right? Um, and for me, my culture is being an Indian woman, born and raised here in the States. And it really was, it was a bridge between two cultures because I grew up with parents that had a very traditional upbringing and a traditional expectation, but I grew up westernized, you know. Um, I grew up falling in love with college football. I went to Ohio State and, you know, loved baseball and, and all the aspects of, of living here in an American Western lifestyle. Um, but my, my ethnicity, um, while it was incredible to have a lot of these gifts at home, was very underappreciated. In fact, it was, there was a lot of out, out, outright racism in how I was viewed. So it really defined um, who I was. And so I had to do a deep dive to really understand my culture um, because I didn't live in the context of being in India. I lived here. And so what, what really resonated for me in terms of my culture is that it's an ancient culture. It's thousands of years old, but it's still thriving. And because of, I was raised in this yoga and meditation mindset, it's home of the philosophies and the concepts that we've come to embrace and love here in the West. I mean, the words that we use like mantra are routinely talked about even on ESPN, right? Like what are, what are the things that we reach to in our normal colloquialism has been sort of pulled into it. But being a uh, South Asian, um, also that identity um, required me to really look at the history uh, of that culture and, and the indelible impact of colonialism. Because the truth is my parents, my dad um, was a small child as India gained its independence. So, and my parents grew up in post-colonial India. And so that, that the harm of 200 years of oppression under the British um, really was uh, quite powerful and indelible. And in truth, what makes it even more important in this conversation is that there was so much harm and colonization that the presence of the British Raj was also about suppression of indigenous traditions. That was the reason why yoga and meditation, a lot of these beautiful wisdoms we love now were nearly squelched. They had to be preserved far out of the colonial reach. Um, so there is a sense of appreciation and um, indebtedness I have for the people that have done their part to preserve these traditions and to continue passing them on. So, you know, there's these timeless, beautiful wisdoms that we see that transforms our lives just, you know, decades ago were thought to be savage and part of an inferior race. So that stays with me. That's part of that cultural um, heritage I've taken. So what, what makes it real, I'll, I'll bring it back to like right now, right? What's, what's interesting is the indelible consequence of um, being a South Asian, of being an Indian woman today in the yoga world now is to recognize that there is very little understanding about colonialism, of imperialism, 
of these social aspects. Um, yet in 2014, there was a there was a survey that was sent out in um, Great Britain. It was something like 1,700 respondents, so pretty good size. And they all voted three to one that the British Empire is more something to be proud of than ashamed of, and that Britain's former colonies are better off for being colonized. Mm. So just take that for a second. Absolutely. That the majority of people think that colonized and suppression of indigenous traditions was a good thing. Yeah. So we still have these relevant aspects of colonialism still present in our culture. And that becomes really um, a part of our experience culturally as South Asians here in the West, because those attitudes are still pervasive, right? So hopefully that answers that bit. It does, yes. And it's so, it's so, because the, huh, the colonizing thing confuses me because I've thought of it first as the like the colonial mindset of the colonizers. Yeah. But then there's also this thing of the mindset of the people who have been colonized and like trying to get the proximity to whiteness and trying to, you know, exploit, like learning that whiteness and, and using it almost like an, an internalized racism. Right, right. So which one is it? Or is it both? And can you help define that? Because people listening so, may not have been exposed to these terms yet, but right. I find myself very confused well, when to use which terms. We weren't taught this, but we can understand it as Americans, right? Because we were a colony once, right? Before our independence, we were a colony of the British. And what happened to us here is that our colonies started a revolution and fought for independence over several ideals. But what's the big one that we remember in our history books? That it was taxation without representation. Mm -hmm. Is that we were being oppressed in a way that more was being extorted from us than being contributed. And so as a commonwealth, you're supposed to have all the rights and privileges of your, the, the person that's overseeing you. It was supposed to be the queen, right? And, and the British government. But that didn't happen here. And how quickly did we boot them out and establish our country? So we understand this concept of independence, right? Now understand that concept of colonialism is what if the Brits never left? What if we were still a colony of them? What if we were subjugated to British law, even though we lived and thought differently? What if we had to continue paying forward everything of our labors to something that would never honor our own rights, our own needs for self-governance? So that is the big drop of colonialism, you know, in a really generic 50,000 foot way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. So all the harms that come from that is indeed what we see in most of the world, right? Because it wasn't just the Brits, there was many countries that shaped, shaped the world based on imperialism. And even deeper is the idea that there was a racial bias, a supremacy of, again, like this survey that the British former colonies were better off from being colonized. Well, there are a lot of writers who have made clear examples of how different that is. Tashi Theroux, who um, served on the UN, wrote a really in interesting book called Inglorious Empire. And he does a deep dive describing on what the British Raj really did to India and what that colonization, what that harm was and still is today. Like what you're seeing, this sort of anglicizing, right? But the anglicizing, even deeper from a philosophical roof. We're gonna get back to our meditation roots, right? So pluralism, many thoughts, many ideas, heterogeneous, that idea that multiple languages, multiple faiths can live side by side had been a part of India's pre-colonial history. It was wealthy, it was commercialized at a highly, bank, uh, highly developed banking system, 
And that completely changed once the British entered, right? It was looting like it was here. So, and, and it became a source of revenue. So there, there's a capitalistic commodification because it's about ownership and what money comes from it. So that, that's getting in even in deeper into what colonialism is. So we could go, I mean, we could spend a whole hour talking about it, but right. from a meditation perspective, it's, the, it's um, a European philosophical mindset that uh, a colleague of mine named uh, Sham Ranganatham, he's a PhD um, philosopher of yoga, as well as um, the uh, Western traditions, great material, great books about really looking at this. He talks about the European philosophical mindset and how it's so different because it was supposed to be fit one box, right? This sort of ownership. Um, the superiority of the English language and its contribution to the world is sometimes what we often hear, right? Versus what you see in India, you've got, you know, over 30 different languages, different um, styles of food, different customs and so forth that proliferated, different faiths. So there's a difference with that, right? And again, it goes back to our philosophy, many paths, one truth. So good. I want to, I'm like holding, actively holding myself back from going down this rabbit hole with you and maybe we'll do a whole separate interview because there's so much there. Um, I do want to get into the intended discussion here, which is cultural appropriation. And that's obviously related to what you were just talking about. Can you, can you tell us what cultural appropriation? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we want to start first by understanding appropriation in terms of what makes sense to us. Right. Um, so appropriation is just the act of taking something for your own use, right? And, and typically doing it without permission. So in academics, we talk about it as plagiarism. And, and we see it in, in the music and the art industry too. We don't really care for people um, who steal other people's work. And, and we were talking about this before we jumped on the call. I happened to listen to a Millie Vanilli song. It happened to be on in some random thing. And it just immediately brought me back to that 1989, girl, you know, it's true. And yeah. Blame it on the rain. Man, we all fell in love with that album. They were, I think they were Grammy Artist of the Year, you know, Best New Artist. And what happens? They go on to some live um, uh, MTV show. They're lip-synced music. They're lip-syncing the music that was sang by five other artists. And of course, the music stops. And we discover that they had been faking it all along. So, you know, there was this huge public backlash. We all hated them. Everyone wanted to you know, there was lawsuits, they had to turn in their Grammy, there was this whole debacle that happened from it. And for the rest of these decades, we all can remember Millie Vanilli is the guys that stole that music, right? Mm -hmm. well, so it's a cautionary tale of exploitation, because really, it was the guy that signed them on, that put them on these things, right. that told them, well, you know, you're not good enough to sing, but you guys look good, so I'm going to keep you there, right? And it's a cautionary tale about naivety, like, well, you know, something's wrong, but you're going to be innocent of it, right? And they played it off, so they got caught right? So, you know, plagiarism, we understand. Appropriation, okay, that's when we feel that's more serious because it's without permission. So cultural appropriation is actually a little deeper. It's a little more sophisticated, and I, I think we have to do justice by going to the, the people who've studied it. Um, Loretta Todd, she's a Canadian documentary filmmaker and essayist. She wrote, um, she, she has done a lot of advocacy for Aboriginal title and rights and wrote in 1990, cultural appropriation originates in its autonomy. Cultural autonomy signifies the right to cultural specificity, a right to one's origins and histories as told from within the culture and not mediated from without. So we can define then culture. 
in that sense. Appropriation occurs when someone speaks for, tells, defines, describes, represents, uses or recruits the images, stories, experiences, dreams of others for their own. Appropriation also occurs when someone else becomes the expert of your experience and is deemed more knowledgeable about who you are than yourself. Hmm. I mean, I think that's powerful because it, it, it describes what we were talking about before, this aspect of ownership, this European concept that was a common practice of preempting the rights and privileges of others is part of that harm that's buried in cultural appropriation, right? So, and we know it, we get it. We understand what it's like here in the West because we don't care for it. We don't, like, we don't like cheaters. We don't like plagiarism. You know, we're quick to call that out. So let's talk about yoga and meditation because yoga has been, it looks markedly different here in the West than where it came from, from an Indian tradition. And so yoga here is opening up a mat, wearing really expensive pants, doing really incredibly challenging posts, you know, poses, and then posting it on Instagram. It's become a very outward sort of like um, um, image-based practice, right? But yoga actually is meditation. It's a generic term for meditation and disciplinary practices. So that doesn't really match, right? That's, that's an appropriation or a misapplication of that. So Indian philosophies in a broad sense include Buddhist philosophies, but what's interesting here when we talk about appropriation and cultural appropriation is that it's, it's almost as if it's been whitewashed and stripped of any religious affiliation when it really is a philosophy. It's an indigenous culture, um, philosophical belief, but here we, we describe it, and I'm gonna, I may upset a few people, but we use the term mindfulness. But mindfulness actually came from underneath the practice of yoga, of meditation. So when we're pulling that term mindfulness, I just, I would just, I would ask this, why has there been such a need to sterilize the wisdom systems for consumption, research, and training? And who's benefiting from it? So I'll take an example. I mean, there are a lot of incredible people there in this space that do work in mindfulness and, and I follow their work. I love their work. I support it. Um, Richard Miller, he's this incredible researcher that developed um, yoga nidra training. When he did research in, uh, in all, believe in the military of all things, in the Department of Defense, he wanted to get um, the grant money to be able to pursue the research of using yoga nidra for PTSD um, for his veterans. Well, he said he had a hard time putting yoga and nidra in there because that didn't make sense. There was not really a sign up on it. So instead, he created the title Integrative Rest or iRest was able to get the um, investment for the research grant, has done incredible work in documenting how this type of meditation of yoga nidra transforms um, our veterans that suffer with PTSD. And, and there goes the ball game. We started changing and creating a sense of understanding of how these indigenous wisdoms work. So yes, there's a win to that. But I will say on his website, he also talks about where the stuff comes from. So he's good about giving a citation where the root of this training was from, and that is a yoga nidra. So I, I think that's part of, again, the way we look at cultural appropriation is based in this European philosophy of ownership, of colonization, where a dominant culture um, 
is thought to be civilized and presumes their excellence of languaging, of culture, and superiority. And then they take on these things, and that can cause unending harm for the source culture. Yeah. It's so interesting. I'm thinking about it in terms of racism and, and being a white woman who's very active in the anti-racist space. And I, I work with a Black woman who's my business partner. Um, but it's like what you said, uh, someone else becoming the expert of your experience and more knowledgeable than you. Like, I, and I don't, I don't ever proclaim to be an expert in anti-black, the experience of black people, you know, who experience anti-black racism at all, but um, more on the like tools and, and, and mindset, tools white, white people can use and, and the mindset white people have and, and helping, like saying some of the stuff that, often non-white people don't get a, can't get away with saying. Um, no. But it's just like, I heard that. I'm like, oh, okay, I hear that. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. And, and, and um, you know, working with my, with my colleague, uh, Dr. Maisha Clearborn, like pr presenting ourselves as experts on this, but not, a, you know, under, but, but I'm always very clear to say, yes, I know my skin is white and all the, and, and talking about that, but it's a very interesting thing. So I'm, I'm, and for anyone else listening, uh, it's, it's a very, um, it's a thought provoking conversation. Thought -provoking. Yes. Isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. And it's, one, it's one that I, I think that's the beauty of having a meditation, mindfulness, yoga practice is that when we hear something that makes us feel uncomfortable. We hold our breath and we feel our body sort of tightening up. That's the place we want to lean into and kind of grow. That's what we need to flesh out because that's where the transformation takes place. That's that sort of growth mindset. If we're comfortable enough to grow, when we grow, we're never going to get everything right. You know, I mean, it takes so many times. If you speak towards Malcolm Gladwell, it takes what, 10,000 times before we become an expert of something. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to be willing to want to fall off our bike a couple of times and get back on and not be afraid to be hurt, but be mindful that we're not hurting others, right? We don't want to crash our bike into everybody in our path to learn our way. We want to be mindful of what's happening in our own experience and the experience around others. And that's usually the best way to lean into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How, how is appropriation different from respect and appreciation? Because obviously I'm a meditation teacher. I'm teaching people to meditate. I uh, myself appreciate a lot of things about India and Indian culture and about, you know, in, in terms of um, U.S. anti-racism, anti-black uh, racism. You don't have to talk specifically about anti-black appropriation or black appropriation uh, of black culture, but how do you distinguish that? Because yeah, that's, it's, it's, it is the question of the time, right? How you know we have so many people who have dedicated their lives, you know, their their businesses, their work into these spaces of wellness in a heartfelt place. They, we genuinely care to want to help our communities and support. Yeah. But then we feel like we hit that line. Well, well, is this, is this respectful or is this appropriative, right? I, I think what makes appropriation different from appreciation is understanding the power dynamic. Mm. It's about power. And so, you know, if, if the power is being placed um, away from the source culture towards a white affluent dominated industry as yoga has become, then it can be very much appropriative. I think what makes it, I think 
understanding the attitude behind it. Appreciation involves an attitude of centering towards the source culture over ourselves. Whereas the, the idea behind taking these teachings and bringing it as a part of our life or what we do, we consider it a stewardship, not an ownership. And yeah. that's a remarkably different concept for those of us here in the West. We're very much into an ownership concept, right? Um, and we're very much about the sort of self-purport. How do we look? What did we gain? And so, you know, of course, in in anti-racism work, we talk about that sort of narrative, uh, performative allyship versus authentic allyship. Who's benefiting? You know, are we just trying to virtue signal as, you know, oh, look what I did. You know, I've done this work, or is it really more about elevating voices and creating understanding? That's stewardship in terms of appropriation. And at the root of it, you'll know it's more appreciation versus appropriation when you hold yourself accountable. Mm. And you hold yourself accountable away from the naivety of saying, well, I didn't know. Well, it's our duty to learn because this is not your source culture. So you have to learn more about what's appropriate. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm taking notes as you're talking and my, my page is covered and I just, <laughs> every word that comes out is brilliant. So thank you. Um, how has, how slash has uh, cultural appropriation of yoga and meditation affected or harmed you? Um, as you, and maybe as also as a South Asian woman, you know, you can, you can take a step back with your partner, but also, I mean, I, I mean, specifically with you though. So, so people listening can really get a sense of what that harm might look like or the impact of it. So I'm, as a yoga therapist, I kind of always go like big and I'm going to say first cultural appropriation, it hurts us all. Mm, it hurts everybody in the room. It does harm to everybody. Because first and foremost, at the heart of it is gross misperceptions of yoga and meditation that largely make it inaccessible for most people, including my clients, my patients, right? You know, a lot, a lot of people come to me because they couldn't do yoga in a gym or they went into a studio and they were overwhelmed and they didn't feel safe or, you know, they didn't feel comfortable with what everyone looked like and how they're supposed to be, this sort of again, external focus. So that's one of the biggest harms about the industry and, and how it's done. And so that harms us all. It harms my clients. It harms me. It harms you. It harms the general public um, because it's not true. It's not rooted in truth. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, quite honestly, the harm, the hurt, there's harm and then there's the hurt. The hurt is that um, I've had to um, understand that the people that have appropriated this work um, that may have taken it with gross misperceptions based on what they heard. You know, the telephone game where you say one thing and you go about five, six um, persons down and it's nothing like the original conversation. So their message is so muted, it's not authentic. It doesn't relate to really what was intended. That that harm um, continues because people will go to those folks because they're more relatable to them. They're white. Mm -hmm. then they're part of the image that's marketed so the continued harm that's commodified in the yoga industry removes it away from the ability for me to be able to step in and offer really more of a holistic you know immersed view of what it what it is what these traditions are that anyone that looks in any way and meditate can do yoga
and it doesn't require an expensive mat or expensive, you know, studio ownership, which of course has all gone to the wayside with COVID. So I think um, the business impact is really hard. Um, and, and so for a lot of people who make it their business to do yoga, um, whether it's selling merchandise or whether it's, you know, creating these wellness spaces, um, when you're doing it without any sort of accountability without any visible presence of the source culture, you got to start asking questions. And so I'll ask this question. Why is it that in every yoga magazine or yoga store or any sort of, um, you know, these larger scaled marketed programs that you see, why is it that you don't see any South Asians in the space when it came from South Asia? Why? So that's the harm that, and that's the hurt. Um, and it hurts us all because it's, it's not, it's not true and it's not authentic and it's not giving the richness of what it was intended to. What are, I think you've gotten at this, but um, maybe you can get more specific, not that you need to be more specific. You've already been quite specific and wonderful, but some of the pitfalls of white people or non, non Indian people uh, practicing and or teaching yoga and meditation, like specifically for, for people taking, any of my meditation courses or teaching meditation who, who have skin that look like me. Right. Um, and also, honestly, you know, black people could appro uh, appropriate Indian culture as well. Right. Um, what are, what are, what are the pitfalls there? Um, so I think it really comes down to the teachings, right? Um, and the pitfalls are not just there for whites, it's for everybody. You know, again, cultural appropriation hurts everybody. And so the pitfalls hurt everybody because you're teaching in a plurality space now. I think one of the most harmful things um, we need to be aware of as teachers and as students, you know, that are learning these things and applying it as our own personal practice, or if it's what we're teaching, is that the aspect of using these teachings to perform what's called spiritual bypassing is a huge pitfall. We have a lot of people that come into this space that want to just feel good. And, and be in that space and stay in that bubble. And that may be very appropriate for wherever that person is, particularly if we're talking about a trauma experience or something of that sort. So this is not an end-all statement for everybody. But when we continue to use our spiritual bypassing um, as a tool, we're not really practicing yoga or meditation in that way. You know, we're not stepping into our own truth. So I would call that the opposite, the toxic positivity, you know, because that's not really helpful. That's not transformative. Yoga is about understanding our sources of suffering and having greater clarity. And that yoga term, again, as we're going to make it very clear, yoga includes meditation. Mm -hmm. It includes our lifestyle. It includes the way we eat. Um, you know, there's this sort of cultish, extremely feminine, strong culture of veganism where people are very hurtful to those who don't practice that. That's not yoga. That's, that's, harmful to project your own practices onto someone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's not, again, about the authenticity, the immersion of these teachings. So when we skip over the core aspect of yoga and meditation philosophy, we're going to do harm. When we skip too many steps, we're not going to get the right product. And that's one of the pitfalls. Um, I think the other thing is this sort of other aspect, which we talked about, the performative allyship. So now, you know, in the last six months, um, we've been seeing a lot of engagement of requesting um, people who are in the non-dominant culture, whether they're Black, South Asian, 
Asian, um, Indigenous, Latinx um, to be involved, but it's not about elevating their work. It's about virtue signaling. People saying, hey, I've done this work. Again, because the pitfall, again, in all of this is the I and the ego and me, 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 and about how great I am, how wonderful I am. That's not yoga. The, the space is to kind of lean into that part where we don't feel really good and try to develop that, right? How do, how do we get into that uncomfortable space? And actually, it's probably what's going to lead you to the next question as I'm looking at this. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess next, and thank you. I mean, this is this is so great. I love that term toxic positivity. I don't know if you came up with that or not, but- um, oh, I can't take credit. Nope, not um, me. But I, I, don't know, I don't know if I've heard it in that, in that, um, in those specific terms, but it's such a thing and it's so easy to miss yeah. if you're not attuned to it. Um, and it's you know, the good vibes only, right? I mean, there's no such thing as good vibes only, right? We, that's not the world we live in. Mm -hmm. Sure, it would be nice, but that's, that's not my experience. I don't know if that's yours either, you know? Right, absolutely. Well, I think I'll keep my, I'll keep my journey out of it. I think for a long time, I was spiritually bypassing quite a bit. I think that's taught a lot in my tradition. And so that's a lot of the work that I've been doing um, over the past few years and, and even more so in the last six months or so, specifically with spiritual bypass and cultural appropriation and in my own meditation tradition and, and how that's a, like a subset or microcosm of, of racism as a whole um, and, and white, supremacy, white supremacy as a whole. So how can white people slash non-South Asian people, because I don't want to center whiteness, but the majority of people probably listening are going to be white. Um, so how can non-South Asian people benefit from these incredible practices, but not, cause, but not cause harm? And what are some measures they can take to prevent the harm and the appropriation and keep it more in the realm of appreciation? I, I think that's a fantastic question. And, and I'm gonna borrow right from you with what you just said, because it truly, it's about doing the work on yourself mm -hmm. and lean into where it's uncomfortable, recognizing those spaces that we just, where your chest tightens or you're starting to sweat or your muscles are tightening and you really don't want to be in there. When we have the tool sets to step in that space to observe it, that's when we get this transformation. That's when we start becoming very aware of first and foremost, our self-harm in these practices because appropriation, again, it hurts all of us. So we have to start working with ourselves. We got to recognize the effects of the harm within ourselves. So the deeper dive can sometimes come into further training and further experiencing and discussions and having community with other people. So the Yoga Sutras is this sort of, it's the comprehensive guide of meditation and yoga. And in it, we talk about authentic practice involving self-study with one, honesty, and two, most importantly, I think, is self-compassion and having this understanding that we all have biases. We all have deep-seated conditional ideas that have come from misinformation and misperception and very much so perhaps even survival, like whatever it took for the people that formed our opinions, right, very early on, they are also uh, subject to the same aspect. They also are survivors of this. So Sia Collins is a local social activist that does work in anti-racism. Um, and she does the, the um, she has done this fantastic job of explaining 
a lot of what we can do, each of ourselves. And I'd like to quote her because I think it's really beautiful what she said. No matter how open-minded, socially conscious, anti-racist I think I am, I still have old learned hidden biases that I need to examine. It's my responsibility to check myself daily for my stereotypes, prejudices, and discrimination. I think if we take that and make that our daily practice, mm. that's how we hold ourselves accountable and really find a way, right? We learn more. Yeah. So accountability is really part of, again, the sutras. Um, it, and the sutras talks about a concept called yamas and the niyamas. And so it's in the eight limbs of yoga. We have asana, which we all know about. And we have meditation in there and concentration. But the yamas and the niyamas are the very base of the eight limbs of yoga. And, and in it, it's about our our responsibility towards ourself, our self-disciplines, but it's also about our relationship, our social duties. So it's about creating harmony within ourselves and harmony within our communities, because we can't have harmony within ourselves if there's widespread harm in our community. It doesn't work. It has to be both. So when we hold ourselves responsible and others responsible for harmful practices, we're stepping into that space. We're stepping up into the social sense of that harmonization. So if you see sacred or cultural symbols misused, call it out. Whole companies responsible. Just recently, a couple of months ago, there was a very large um, yoga wear company that was advertising uh, a pair of underwear called Namaste. Not Namaste, kind of like our hands together, this gesture of green that we use, but Namaste, S-T-A-Y. That's an appropriative term in which they're commodifying and selling. And it's, it's, it's a term of reverence. It's used in our traditions. So to use that to market it's probably not a good idea. But yeah. if we want to change the culture, we got to hold the companies that are putting this out there for profit responsible. Hold the studios responsible. If you hear or see something that's appropriative, have the courage to lean in and talk about that or explain you didn't really like that because we need allies in this space to elevate the space. If you see things that are sacred symbols, don't put them on in clothing that would be disrespectful. Understand that the source culture doesn't like the symbol of Om on a yoga mat and placing our bottom on it. That's, that's a sacred symbol to many. It may not be for, you know, for how we grew up here, but if it's sacred to someone else, we, wouldn't want, we want to hold that with respect, right? Um, there are a lot of aspects in, in cultural tradition that we can do, but I think the Om is really one big thing. Using that and using that in part of our gimmick ways, Nama Slay, Nama, you know, Nama Virgins, there's a local yoga studio that had done that when they first opening was horrifying to me. I mean, that's again, hold them responsible, call them up and say, you know what, I really don't think that's appropriate. That's a really disrespectful thing. Do you think that, um, is it, is it appropriate or inappropriate for like a non South Asian teacher to say namaste at the end of class and to have people say namaste back. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, so that's a great one because this is always comes up in a cultural appropriation conversation. So, so let's explain it in the plurality that is um, South Asian culture, all right? Namaste is what we use in greetings. And, and boy, has that become really relevant in a pandemic time, right? None of us can really sort of hug and shake hands, but when we, when we see someone, there's this sort of gesturing, this desire to want to um, acknowledge the person that's in front of you. So namaste is a very common greeting in the South Asian community, right? 
but it has, there's a Sanskrit aspect to it, right? There's, it has more value. Now I've heard it all. I've heard honor the place in you where the entire universe dwells. I bow to the place in you with love, light, and joy. My soul recognizes your soul. We are the same. We are one. I honor the place that is in you that is the same in me. Like there are all these different explanations when people use them. Mm -hmm. Now, when we do it in the place of showing appreciation for that source culture, I don't think it's disrespectful, right? But if we say, hey, this is, this is um, what I feel this is, this is an application of these teachings, then I, I can see where that's appropriate. But when we're using it to put it on a shirt, maybe not, because it loses its value. It's not about a greeting anymore. And to be honest with you, when we're greeting, when we're offering this sort of respect that this has been crafted in, in some of the explanations I brought to you, there's um, the more respectful term is namaskar or pranam. That's the actual term of prostration. This is something that you would do in front of, uh, you know, a, um, a holy or spiritual person that um, is very inspiring to you. Nama as a Sanskrit word breaks down to, in namaha particularly in Sanskrit, is not me or it's not about me, which I think is powerful in our conversation. We're talking mm -hmm. about shifting the narrative away from ourselves, right? It reflects the notion that we're not in control of our life or the universe and that we're submitting to a higher power. So namaha, which is used in Sanskrit and therapeutic applications, um, is, is yes, it's a translate, it's a salutation, meaning not mine, but it's translated as I bow to you, which is where you got a lot of these expressions. Remember the five steps down from the original source? Mm -hmm. Got to go back to the source. Got to go back to the Sanskrit to understand what it means. So namaste, the te part means to you. So that's where they got I bow to you, right? But Sanskrit and Hindi sort of coexist at the same time. If you're studying Sanskrit, I understand where you're using it. If you're uh, understanding Hindi, you learned the Hindi term and you're just saying the greeting, I understand it. But if you deviate any way from that, you got to start asking the question, who are you hurting and using it? And if you can't answer that question, maybe use another greeting. Yeah. So what do you think like, because I've noticed that a lot of my yoga, at the end of yoga, they're not saying namaste anymore, but they are saying some version of it. And I think they're doing it on purpose to not appropriate. Right. But is it more like, more appropriated to just say the appropriated definite like translation of it? Yeah. Without acknowledging... Well, I think it's, it's a tricky place and, you know, you're going to get a different answer from, 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 you know, if you ask five different South Asians, you're going to get five different answers. Sure. Some people yeah. say you shouldn't use it. But again, my view is that this is a stewardship. And when we hold it as sacred and we hold it as value, we say, I was taught or I learned this from my teachers, or this is what I listened to in a recent podcast, um, that I'm using this to offer my respect for these um, for these teachings, and I, I bow to it, and I invite you to acknowledge that we are students, right? Mm -hmm. So it just depends. I think we have to be authentic in how we teach. How does it feel in you when we say namaste? Because I, I'm not going to discredit anyone. I say namaste at the end of my classes, but I've used this whole experience of my, my class, my yoga class or my meditation class, and I understand when I use it and I bring my hands together, I'm also acknowledging the physical hand practice, the hasta mudra of bringing the hands together and anjali mudra. And I use the symboling of using the thumbs. The thumbs are facing towards yourself, right? 
facing towards our heart. So for me, I feel it at the end of class, my heartfelt connection with my students and my connection of my students to their practice is where that namaste has so much meaning for me and for my students. So yeah. I can't say no one else should do it. It's not my right and I'm not there to police anybody. Tone policing is a dominant oppressive tactic, not mine. Yeah. But if you are not sure, learn and ask questions. Invite, and if you don't really know even more so, start asking, why aren't there any South Asians in your room where you could ask and see if that context felt right? Because I think at the end, we have to have a growth mindset. We've got yeah. to continue growing with ourselves and our students because we're not going to get it right. And so we got to have humility and use it as a learning opportunity. What, so I, I was on uh, an, 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 an anti-racism retreat and there was a woman there who was, uh, had obesity and she was a, a white woman uh, who was very active in anti-racist spaces and it, her conversation went towards yoga and meditation. And she said, I don't do yoga because it's cultural appropriation. And I was like, mm, I didn't know anything about cultural appropriation really then. Um, but I just sort of felt like maybe she's missing the point a little bit, like taking it a little too far and shooting herself in the foot because it could be something that would be very good for her um, health-wise. She doesn't need to do it to get skinny or anything like that, but I feel like, so what is important for a new meditation student to know about cultural appropriation um, so that they can feel like if they're doing, I don't know, if, if they're doing the, the introspection and doing the work and the accountability and maybe that's all they need to know is, is what I've already asked you. But, right. but um, so they don't feel like I have to shut down now and not do this because meditation's bad if I'm not Indian or meditation's right. bad if I'm learning yeah. from someone white. So again, see, again, and that pivots around the whole conversation about appropriation is this concept of power and ownership. Well, I don't own it, therefore I shouldn't have anything to do with it. That's not what this is. Education and learning is for us all, you know, the original intention of yoga, if we look at it from the original scripts, the first yogi, the Adi Yoga, had sent what was named, uh, described as seven Sapta Rishis, to spread it all over the world. And in fact, historically, we see evidence of yoga practices outside of South Asian. So it's not just the own ownership. It's not about ownership. It's not, well, it's a South Asian practice, therefore I can't do it. It's not a religious practice, therefore I can't do it. It's a philosophy about holding ourselves responsible so everyone can benefit from it. We all can step into a space of meditation and yoga because it's an inside job. And our work in this space is to become an expert about ourselves with compassion. So be willing to make the mistakes, be willing to get on the bike, and then maybe hit the bumps and we don't understand, we fall off. We gotta learn, we gotta understand and anticipate what we have to do. Be willing to work harder to go up the hill when it feels like, you know, this is going to be a lot more work and be willing to enjoy the benefits as we go down the hill and we can just mm -hmm. let the effort go and enjoy the benefits of that practice. I mean, that's, that's really what this practice is about. It's not about ownership. It's about experience. Yoga is relationship. And we live in communities that are ripe with polarity and hate and separation. And we have to have courage and a willingness to engage in an act of compassion, not only for ourselves, but for others, and be willing to kind of seek out the truth that's in all of us. And so I'll leave, I'll leave these quick 
sayings that I encourage students and people that are engaging in a space that feels uncomfortable. One, the recognition that we all need to be seen and heard. We all need to be seen and to be heard. That we can cultivate compassion for ourselves and for others. That we can acknowledge, that we acknowledge all forms of being. That we acknowledge that we are worthy always. And that we are holding space for heartfelt listening and sharing for all. And I think if we take that mindset, we can step into learning these beautiful indigenous wisdoms from around the world. Let it inform us about ourselves, what we can do to create less harm within ourselves. So we're not keeping ourselves, our misperceptions aren't keeping us in a state of perpetual suffering. And that we can engage with our communities with an open heart. Love that. Thank you. Wow. Um, how can people find you? How can people pick up what you're putting down? Social medias, websites, programs, courses, all of the above. Please share. So um, right off the bat, yeah, it, it's, um, you know, my, I have a website, sandalwoodyoga.com. Um, it's HTTPS, um, sandalwood, S-A-N-D-A-L-W-O-O-D, yoga, all one word.com. Um, that's a great place to kind of pick up on me. Um, we're now in a digital world. And so I have a business card, actually, um, where if you, t it's a digital business card. So it's an easy, quick way to get a hold of my website and everything else is easy. So if you go into your text um, feature of your phone and you put in the number 21,021000 and in the word portion, plug in yoga RX, all one word. Y-O-G-A-R-X and hit send, it'll send you, a text you back a link to my digital business card that you could just save straight to your phone because we don't really carry business cards anymore. So it's a link to my website, my email, you know, um, my Facebook. I don't have Instagram um, caught up on there yet. So that's a quick way to get a hold of me. And, um, you know, I'm open to supporting everyone. Uh, 2021, uh, I'm on faculty for a yoga therapy program um, in California and I'll be giving some, um, at least for the first couple of months, we'll be giving lectures about uh, an appreciation of yoga and the appropriation of yoga and more in-depth in depth dives. Um, you know, I, I speak globally, um, available for, you know, anyone who is wanting to step into the space and learn more about it. That's great. Right. You're, 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 you yourself are teaching a course on appropriation. Is that right? Or is that yeah, the one you just right. So I, I, I have that launch for 2021. We kind of put everything to the back burner with everything. <laughs> Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, so unfortunately, one of the victims of 20, uh, 2020 with the pandemic, I had to close my brick and mortar. So I just teach virtually and uh, I work as a yoga therapist. I do individual assessment. So I'm able to give people more of a deep dive of yoga and meditation practices from this um, traditional mindset. Um, okay. And of course, informed from a Western perspective, both psychology and in medicine. That's great. And will information about the appropriation course be on your website when it's ready or is it will be yeah it will be soon we're just i'm having to retool all that and just make sure i've got all my dates confirmed everything just seems to be up in the air yeah you know what i'm not attached right we're not going to own sort of all this it's again it's a big pivotal conversation to uh, be willing to accept and go with things as they go but yeah it's um i intend on doing the course in march and um the appreciation course of yoga and yoga's history um which will go into colonialism it'll be a nice dive into that and how that sort of 
um, rides tandem to the Indigenous Wisdoms in January of 2021. Can, can people like me or anyone listen sign up for that or do they have to be part of? You know, I don't think so. These are considered community days. These are Saturday courses that are offered as part of our yoga therapy um, training program, the curriculum. Um, and the founder of the program is Amy Wheeler. She's extraordinary. Um, I have several friends who are physicians are actually now training with her through their yoga therapy program as they look to diversify their offerings or incorporate yoga and meditation in their um, clinical practices. And um, she, we offer these community days sort of as a deeper dive into some of the material. Um, so I, I have to check with her. I, I, I think as far as I know, anyone can sign up for those things. Okay. Um, I'll certainly um, branch out and be able to provide those materials going forward in 2021 too. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Priya, thank you so, 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 so much. <laughs> right? This was incredible. It's just, for me, it feels like the tip of the iceberg and I just want to soak in everything that you are um, everything that you are sharing. Um, and it's um, just been a, an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And thank you for starting the conversation. You know, we all want to, don't want to just jump in and start learning more. So thank you for opening the mic and, and uh, bringing me on board to talk about these things. I love it. Awesome. All right. Thank you.